Let us pray. O God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated for the reading. A Psalm of David, a reading from Psalms, chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's stand together for the reading of our gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, the 10th chapter beginning at the 22nd verse. Glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, Praise to you, Lord, Lord Christ. Christ. Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and overrule and overwhelm as we turn now to the preaching of your word, God's word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard is in accordance to the word of God and the will of God for the good of God's people and for God's glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, just about 20 years ago, the BBC broadcast a piece of investigative journalism, a story called Son of God. And in this piece of investigative journalism, they, they looked into the life of Jesus. They used history and science and archaeology, and they wanted to ask the question and answer the question, who was this Jesus? One of the correspondents, one of the talking heads, one of the experts in this BBC piece of journalism, 
Uh, his name was Jeremy Bowen, and he has spent a significant amount of time in the Middle East as a BBC correspondent, and he admitted his surprise to discover that there was and there is actual historical evidence for the existence of this man, Jesus. He was surprised. But then he went on to state, the important thing is not what he was or what he wasn't. The important thing is what people believe him to have been. Right. So here's the, the crux of Mr. Bowen's opinion. Yes, there's evidence for Jesus, evidence that Jesus existed, that he died, but that's not really what's important. What's important for Mr. Bowen is what people make of Jesus. Does that ring true to anyone in here this morning? With all due respect to Mr. Bowen and this perspective, this is misguided. It isn't even intellectually honest because it doesn't allow the historical person to have a say in what we should think of him. For example, do we think that there was a historical person named Julius Caesar? Sure. Do we think that it is not important to know the facts about Julius Caesar? Rather, what's important is for us to know what we think about him. No. None of us would ever do that, right? When we meet someone, we, reply, we rely upon their self-disclosure. We rely upon them revealing to us who they are, them telling us who we are. And as a relationship develops... The revelation of that self is either then confirmed or denied by what they do, and then we can say, yes, I know the person. When it comes to the question, who is Jesus, I would say to you, the first person we ought to pay attention to is Jesus himself. This is the question, who is Jesus? This is the question at the very heart of John's gospel, and it's the question on the lips of Jewish leaders one day in the temple, in the midst of the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. That's the question in John chapter 10, 22 through 30, on the lips of these Jewish leaders. Who are you, Jesus? You tell us who you are. Recognizing there was something about Jesus that, that required their attention and some kind of decision to be made, leaders of the Jewish people came and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tired of riddles and illusions, tired of cryptic talk, tired of hearing parables. They want a straight answer from the horse's mouth, so to speak. If you are the Messiah, tell us clearly. Jesus was popular. Jesus was doing amazing things that no one had really ever done before. Was Jesus the Messiah? Was he this one who was to be a military leader, a political leader, a religious reformer? Was he the one who would bring about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel? Who are you, Jesus? Now, give the, give the leaders of the Jews credit for whatever their motivations may have been. At least they were willing to come to the source and say, who are you? But in their asking the question, they received a really long answer to a very short question. They, bought, they, they bit off more than they could chew. Because in typical Jesus fashion, he gives them more than they bargained for. Jesus answered them, I told you, but you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. 
It's true, in John's gospel, the words, I am the Messiah, really aren't found on Jesus' lips. And only in a couple of places in all of John's gospel are there, uh, do we find a positive affirmation from Jesus where he says, essentially, I am the Messiah. John chapter 4 and John chapter 9. In an individual conversation with a woman at a well in John 4 and a man healed from his blindness in John 9, do we see Jesus say something to the effect of, I am Messiah. But Jesus here in John 10 is not leaning back on his words so much as he's leaning back on what he's done. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness. And he says to these leaders, if you had been only paying attention, you would know. Jesus had healed a man who'd been unable to walk for 38 years in John 5. He fed a huge crowd in the wilderness with a super abundant feast in John 6. He walked on water also in John 6. And Jesus in John chapter 9 healed a man born blind. In the midst of doing all of this, Jesus claimed with his words to be doing what he sees the Father doing. He claimed, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Here in John 10, he's telling these men, these, these group, this group of religious leaders who've asked him, who are you? He's telling them, I've given you plenty of evidence. You should know. But sometimes, even in the face of evidence, people can't believe the truth. Tom Brady has six Super Bowl rings, and people still want to say he's not the greatest of all time. <laughs> A man named Constantine returned to Romania after a 20-year stay in Turkey to find out that the Romanian government, at his wife's urging, had previously declared him dead. Surprised to find out that he was dead, seeing as he was alive. In an interview, Constantine said, I'm officially dead, although I'm alive. I have no income, and because I'm dead, I cannot do anything. In the early 90s, he had left Romania to go to Turkey to work, to earn money. He earned and he came back to Romania to tragically and, and heartbreakingly discover that his wife had been unfaithful to her marital vows and so he decided to leave Romania again for good and he went back to Turkey. However, he thought he was going back to Turkey for good. The officials of Turkey had other ideas because his visas expired and so the Turkish officials sent him back, deported him back to his country of origin where he discovered that the authorities believed him to be dead. Border agents subjected Constantine to six hours of testing and questioning. They asked him topographical questions about his hometown. They even measured the contours of his face and compared that to old passport photos. The border agents finally released him. They said he's alive. But officials in Barlad, however, were not as accommodating. Citing his delay as a clerical error, they denied his request to overturn the death certificate on the basis of it being too late. <laughs> Even in the face of overwhelming evidence, some people just won't believe the truth. And sometimes, maybe better stated, sometimes people can't believe the truth. Look again at what Jesus has to say here in John chapter 10, this time picking up at verse 26. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. He said, here's all the evidence that I've done, but you can't believe. You won't believe because you're not my sheep. What marks out a sheep of Jesus? He tells us, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
And so these leaders are asking the question, who are you, Jesus? These leaders are the Jewish people, but they cannot believe in Jesus because they are not his sheep. They don't hear his voice. They don't follow him. They aren't known by him. And this isn't an excuse. This isn't some sort of first century equivalent to saying, I didn't know, I didn't get the memo, you didn't text me. This is an indictment of them. This is judgment upon them that they are not a sheep of Jesus. There's a simple reality that all of humanity is divided into two fundamental groups, those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. And we can say this with confidence because of Jesus' own words in Matthew 13 and Matthew 25 and in other places where Jesus discusses entrance into his kingdom as well as judgment. These leaders of the Jewish people tragically think that they are part of God's kingdom people, but what they actually are is shown in their rejection of, their disbelief in, and their refusal to accept Jesus. They reveal who they truly are, what they truly are, by what they do with Christ. So when Jesus says that his sheep hear his voice and follow him, he's revealing how these folks and how others can know they are in Jesus' flock. It all comes back to him. It all comes back to Jesus asking essentially the question back, who do you say that I am? It is by their response to Jesus that our response to Jesus, that who we are in Jesus' flock is revealed. It isn't what we make of Jesus. It's not what they make of Jesus. It is whether we or they believe in Jesus and what he makes of us that is important. One of the things that's being reflected upon in this passage, as Jesus is answering this question, he's giving a long answer to a short question, one of the things that's reflected upon in this passage is God's sovereignty in salvation. They cannot understand Jesus because they're not his sheep. They're not his sheep. Look in verse 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus here brings attention to the sheep. He brings attention to what the sheep receive from him. But more than that, Jesus brings attention to the one who does the sheep making, the one who does the holding of the sheep. A person can only respond to Jesus as the shepherd. A person can only believe in him and become his sheep because first the Father gives that person to Jesus. The focus here is on the sovereignty of the Father and the sovereignty of the Son in salvation. The Father gives the sheep to the Son. The Father and the Son hold the sheep firm. God is the one who makes his sheep. God is the one who keeps his sheep. And this is what it means for God to be sovereign in salvation. The sheep are the sheep because of God's doing. The sheep remain the sheep because of God's doing. God is sovereign over salvation. God is the one who saves and who holds. But how is it then that a sinful person can follow Jesus as the good shepherd? Ultimately, the answer is that God is sovereign over salvation. It's evident from the very beginning of Scripture and the very beginning of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, we read this, To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To come into the kingdom, to be a sheep of Jesus, means one must be born of God. Jesus reflects upon this in John chapter 3, his conversation with Nicodemus. He says, no flesh can come into the kingdom of God unless what? They're born again. The day after feeding the crowd in the wilderness, Jesus said in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In verse 65 of chapter 6, he says this, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. What we're seeing here is the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. And listen, I know and I recognize that I don't have all the answers about how God's sovereignty works out with man's supposed free will. I won't pretend to have them all. What we can say from Scripture is this. God is absolutely sovereign when it comes to salvation. God causes it. God works it out. God applies it effectually. And Paul builds on this in Ephesians chapter 2, where he essentially says, you, we all are dead in our sins. How does a dead thing choose life? How does something that is a slave to sin choose to be free? How does something that is dead elect himself or herself to life? Paul says this, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he did what? Made us alive together with Christ. We're hitting on this really deep theological truth. God is sovereign in salvation. It's not something we're making up. It's out of the mouth of Jesus. The Father gives into the hand of the shepherd. And let me just say this. God's sovereignty over salvation is ultimately for his own glory, and it is for the good of his sheep. It is for his glory. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 48, there's this context of, of God basically saying to his, his people, I have delayed my wrath upon you for my own sake, for my own name's sake, or for my name's sake. He, he goes on to say, you know, there's this idea as well in Ezekiel chapter 20, reflecting back upon the Exodus where he says, I delayed my judgment upon you for my own sake. I didn't destroy you in the wilderness for my own sake, so that my name wouldn't be besmirched. Listen, Joan Jett may not care about her reputation, but God does. Am I the only one that ever listens to classic rock and roll? Thank you, June. Yes. God works, Justin Taylor says, God works for both his glory and our good, but the Bible puts a priority on God's interest over ours as the basis for his action. Why does God save? For his glory. Yes, it's for our good, but ultimately it's for his glory. Psalm 23 is one of the most famous psalms of all time. I'm sure that we could, renounce, we could all say it together in unison, probably in the King James, right? Because that's the way we memorized it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. David goes on in the psalm that even in the face of the darkness of death, the presence of the shepherd drives away fear. Even in the face of enemies, there's a table of plenty and goodness overflows because God is the shepherd. Goodness and mercy are all over the place in this psalm. There's an eternal dwelling. But why? David actually tells us. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
for his own glory. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, we read this, For the Lord will not forsake his people for, the great, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God's sovereignty in salvation is for his glory. Why does the Father send the Son to save? Why does the Father give the, and keep the sheep? It's not because we're great. It's because he's great. It's not so that we'll be famous, so that he'll be famous. It's not so that our kingdom will grow, but so his kingdom will grow. God's sovereignty and salvation, this biblical idea that God has taken and continues to take the initiative in saving his sheep is for his glory. And so no one can boast, as Paul will say. No one can claim to have earned sheepdom. To the contrary, in fact, we can only receive and then boast in God as he has given unearned favor to save. But his sovereignty and salvation is for the good of his sheep, absolutely for our good. And think about it this way. If the saving of a sheep is dependent upon the sheep's ability to perform, then what happens when the inevitable occurs and the sheep cannot perform at the level required to earn salvation? What happens? It's gone, right? If the status of a sheep is dependent upon the strength of the sheep's grasp upon the shepherd, what happens when the sheep's grasp weakens or is threatened or is broken? It's gone. What Jesus says here in John chapter 10 reflects upon God's sovereignty and salvation and that it is for the good of the sheep. We're talking about something that we might call predestination or election, God's sovereignty and salvation. In our Anglican 39 articles, it's actually referred to in Article 17 as full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Why? Because it's based on God and God's pursuit of his glory and what God does, not upon what we do. Because if it's based upon what we do, unless you're really different than me, you're going to mess it up. I'm weak, but he is strong. I'm not all that faithful, but he is faithful. So Jesus' sheep are kept in the palm of the shepherd's hand, in the palm of the Father's hand, and there is assurance, there is courage, there is faith. Leon Morris exclaims, our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. No matter what earthly disaster may befall them, this shepherd is all-powerful, and the sheep in his hand have nothing to fear. Why? Because God is sovereign in salvation. God is the one who makes, and God is the one who keeps his sheep. You talk about getting more than they bargained for, right? Talk about more of an answer than they really wanted. These Jewish leaders were seeking to pigeonhole Jesus, to get him stuck in a box and from there to accuse him, yet Jesus will not be bound by what they think they want. Instead, he goes beyond their question to get to the deepest heart of the matter. It doesn't matter what Jesus says or does. They won't believe it because they can't believe it. They have not been given to him by the Father. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Jesus is the shepherd. He's given all the evidence that is necessary. And then Jesus does, like, I think the ultimate mic drop here, right? He raises the bar one more time. He delivers one more blow. In verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And when Jesus says this, John tells us the very next verse, 31, 
the Jewish leaders picked up stones again to stone him. What is Jesus doing? Jesus here is declaring his absolute unity with the Father in volition and in ontology. Jesus claimed complete identification with the Father in volition, in mission and in will. And underlying that claim, he claimed complete identification with the Father in ontology, in being. His audience understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, and that's why they sought to stone him for blasphemy in accordance with the Old Testament blasphemy codes. John is very precise in his gospel when it comes to answering the question, who is Jesus, as he's very clear and very careful from the very beginning to declare Jesus as the eternal Son of God, of one being with the Father, made flesh for the salvation of humanity and the restoration of creation. This is the gospel that begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as John goes on to write in the gospel, the word was made flesh to reveal the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. In John chapter 5, the incarnate, unique son Jesus claims to do what the Father does. In verse 30 of our passage today, he claims oneness with the Father. In John chapter 14, Jesus states, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Why? Because they've seen Jesus. And in John chapter 8 of John's, John chapter 8, this very Jesus has the name of God on his lips when he says, before Abraham was, I am. When asked, who are you, Jesus? His response, quite frankly, is overwhelming. Jesus reveals himself here in John chapter 10 to be the unique Son of God of the same being and mission as the Father, the shepherd who receives his sheep in the sovereignty of God. And so what, right? Great question. I always like to throw that in there. Why is this a big deal? Does it matter at all? Of course it matters. What are we to take away from this event in John's gospel? A couple of lines of thinking to help transform us in our faith and in our thinking. Remember first, back to the beginning of our sermon this morning, Jeremy Bowen, that BBC journalist, reflecting much of popular thinking. His uh, opinion was that what people make of Jesus is more important than who Jesus actually was and is. But about this, C.S. Lewis, 50 years before Mr. Bowen made this statement, C.S. Lewis once said, what are we to make of Jesus Christ? This is a question which has, in a sense, a fanatically uh, comic side. For the real question is not, what are we to make of Jesus, but what is he to make of us? C.S. Lewis then goes on to say that for us to ask the question, what are we to make of Jesus, is like a fly asking the question, what am I to make of this elephant? It doesn't make sense. We can only make of Jesus what Jesus makes of himself. John's Gospel asks an eternally relevant question, who is Jesus? John's gospel goes on to great lengths to reveal Jesus as the unique Son of God sent for the salvation of many. And our passage today answers this question. Jesus reveals himself to be that unique Son of God of the same being and mission as the Father, the shepherd who receives his sheep in the sovereignty of God. And folks, this sets Jesus apart from every single individual within Scripture and within history. There is no one else ever like Jesus. There's only Jesus. 
Yes, uh, other men and women have been used by God in Scripture and in history to further Jesus' kingdom. And yes, God makes men and women children in his kingdom, but none are like Jesus. He's utterly unique because only Jesus is one person with fully divine and fully human natures. Muhammad has nothing on Jesus. Buddha has nothing on Jesus. The spaghetti monster has nothing on Jesus. We don't have anything on Jesus because Jesus is absolutely unique. None of the other things can save. Muhammad can't save you. Jesus can. Buddha can't save you. Jesus can. The spaghetti monster can't save you. Jesus can. I can't save me or you, but Jesus can. Incredibly and individually unique. He alone is the Son, and so He alone can save. There is salvation in no one other, no other name than Jesus. And this is both a warning and an assurance. First, the warning. Who do you say Jesus is? It's easy for us to read Scripture and think that we're the heroes. More likely than not, in this particular context, I would find myself among the Jewish leaders or the silent crowd. I certainly wouldn't find myself next to Jesus. Who do we say Jesus is? What do we believe about Jesus? The Jewish leaders had a preconceived notion of what the Messiah should look like and be. They formed Jesus in their own image. They demanded that he conform to their desires. They did not take Jesus at his word. Who do you say Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus? Have you formed Jesus in your own image? Have you demanded that Jesus conform to your desires? Or do you take Jesus at his word? There's also assurance here as well. Assurance in the simple fact that salvation depends upon his firm grip on us. Not on the strength of our grip upon him. And we know that we are Jesus' sheep. We can know that we are Jesus' sheep in hearing his voice and following him. Sheep hear Jesus. Sheep believe in Jesus. Sheep follow him. They believe and they continue to believe in Jesus as he is revealed in Scripture and trusting him, keeping, keep on following. Jesus, the eternal Son, is absolutely connected to the Father. They are one in being and in purpose. If then we would like to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. If we want to come before God, we do so through Jesus. This is what God is like. This is what the gospel is. Author Fred Sanders put it this way, the gospel is that God is for us, that he gives himself to be our salvation. The amazing nature of this gospel should lead us to praise. The truth that Jesus is the unique son of God, of the same being and mission as the father, that he is the shepherd who receives his sheep in the sovereignty of God, that is deep theology that should lead us to doxology, to praise and worship. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who saves. Who is Jesus? He's the unique son of God. Who is Jesus? He's the one on mission from the father. Who is Jesus? He is the shepherd who receives his sheep from the sovereignty of God. Who is Jesus? He is the one worthy of our worship. In Jesus, God, Father, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the only God worthy to be praised. It's a long answer to a short question. It's a long sermon to a few verses. But I said these things to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we pray that you would make much of Jesus before us. 
Gracious God, we pray that you would be at work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit to bring to bear upon our hearts, our souls, the very center of our being, the truth of who Jesus is, the unique Son of God, sent to save on mission from the Father. Be our shepherd. Come and lead us, and may we respond with obedience and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship this morning as we sing.